Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. This is another of our special extra episodes around coronavirus 19 uh, and the social, political, uh, and other impl- economic implications uh, of, that, of that shock to our system. Uh, today's guest is Ben Gertzel, who's been on the show before, and uh, he's put out some interesting tweets uh, focusing on some of the not-so-good things to expect on the other side of the uh, C-19 outbreak. And you know, I think that's important for us to start thinking about right now, because whether the peak's going to be in uh, late April, May, June, it's not far off. And unfortunately, uh, what I'm seeing, even from the best uh, state and national leaders, uh, is very understandable. Focus on trying to flatten the curve and dealing with the uh, shitstorm we have from the, the rising curve. But interestingly, the managing the backside of the curve is going to be every bit as important, in fact, maybe more important to the long-term social and economic health of our country. So with that, let's uh, jump in. So Ben, one of the things you talk about is, and you know, we're already seeing it. My daughter, who's 31, a lot of her friends working in you know entry-level positions, they're all getting laid off, right? And uh, many of them aren't going to be rehired. Uh, the economy is going to restructure itself. What are some of your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of changes in the economy and structure of society that have been sort of poised and waiting to happen but held back by a sort of inertia. And then the disruption of, of COVID-19 triggers some changes that were sort of vested in, in the structure of, of society. And, you know, it's, it's hard to focus one's attention on these medium-term economic and social issues when you're worried about, am I going to die next week? Or is, is my grandma going to die tomorrow, right? But on, on the other hand, we're going to get through the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, it's, it's bad and people will die who I, I would much rather didn't, didn't die, but we're going to get through it. We're going to create vaccines. We're going to find antiviral cocktails. And at, at the end of it, society is going to be a little bit different than before in ways that are, are going to be significant for many people. And in many ways, not good, not good for a lot of people, right? So that, and you can see this in a, in a bunch of different ways, right? So I mean, yeah, one of them, as, as you say, Jim, is a lot of service employees are, are being laid off now. And there's clearly, there's an obvious pattern to who's gonna get laid off and who isn't, right? So I mean, if, if you're a, you know, a knowledge employee, or if that term still is, is used, I mean, if you're, if, if you're white collar and you're working uh, at your laptop all day, right, or at, at your at your desk, uh, you know, writing documents and munching spreadsheets, pretty much you can still do that at home. You can convert your meetings to Zoom calls. There's a bit of loss of efficiency due to the, you know, toddler flinging muck at your head while you work at home. But, you know, you're still operational. But if you're 
if you're flipping burgers at McDonald's or, or you know, greeting people at, at, at the department store or carrying out various uh, jobs that are just face-to-face -face human interaction, I mean, then there's really no reason for your employer to keep you employed during this sort of flash depression we're seeing due to COVID. And indeed, your employer probably can't afford to, but then once the COVID flash depression is over, then what happens? In some cases, you'll just get hired back. But in other cases, your employer will take a fresh look at the situation and think like, well, maybe we can do more online ongoingly even after COVID is gone. Or maybe, maybe you know, maybe now is the time to invest in some uh, automation technology or to outsource this or that. So I think not all the service employees laid off are going to be rehired. And then, you know, at the same time, smart investors that funds with piles of money, they're going to be looking around now and saying, well, like, hey, what can I, what can I buy up at a discount price during this depression? Because, the, you know, the owners don't have the money to sustain for, for six months without revenue. Or, you know, what, what comparators can I put out of business? because they, they can't survive on their, on their cash stockpile, but, but I can. So you're going to see major consolidation in a variety of industries. So in short, increasing wealth in the hands of the wealthy and more unemployed people uh, becoming poorer and, and poorer. At the same time, as more power is going to the hands of big tech companies and big government, right? Because the, the tech lash is fading. now. Everyone loves Amazon, and every, everyone loves uh, Google and, and, and Zoom and whatever tools give them their lifeline and connection, Facebook, give their lifeline and connection to the, to the outside world while they're, they're stuck at home uh, dealing with their suddenly much more annoying family members, right? So, I mean, TechLash is gone. You know, big uh, banks and PE funds are owning more and more working class people put out of, out of work. And then, you know, government will slowly put in better and better surveillance mechanisms, sucking data from big tech so as to better monitor the pandemic. But then whatever monitoring they put in place for the pandemic is going to keep going, right? So we're, we're looking toward more and more of a sort of a fascist oligopoly and oligarchy, which... It's kind of what we already have, but we're nudging further and further in, in, in that direction once this pandemic is, is, is gone. At least, you know, none of us knows what the hell is going to happen, but that, that, that seems like sort of the, the most likely course unless something even worse happens or unless some of us crazy hackers and, and, and freaks manage to get some alternative systems rolling. Yep, I think uh, that's, those are all spot-on analyses. You know, I use a little bit, I use a framing for what comes after, and I say that we'll, we'll see a mix of homeostasis and hysteresis. Uh, you know, homeostasis being a biological, uh, mostly biological, I think it has a chemical origin, of systems that tend to converge back to the way they were. Hysteresis being a physics term for systems that, uh, basically are influenced by recent events and move off into new directions and don't return. Uh, and, you know, an example I like to give is business travel. It's my firm prediction. I made some adjustments in my portfolio to uh, represent this, that business travel will never return. As you were saying, things that could have happened 
but hadn't happened because of inertia. Uh, you know, there was sort of this game theoretic, I have to show you respect by flying to Hong Kong for a one hour meeting. Uh, waste of time and money at prodigious portions. Well, I, 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 I think you're wrong on that one, but we, we, could, we could place a bet on it because right. I, I think uh, for psychological reasons, you're wrong. I think a lot of people are going to get sick of uh, hang out with their husband and kids or wife and kids and they will be very eager to very eager to resume business travel just for personal reasons so yeah, I, I think I'm, you I'm, want to go back I'll, I'll bet you let's do it let's uh, phrase a bet and i'll i'll uh, bet bet you any reasonable stake because uh, i do believe people do need to get back to work most people working for home is not sustainable but flying halfway across the world for a one-hour business meeting absurd when you could spend when you could do three one-hour zooms and get much more work done well, well I, I think as as often it will probably be a bit of each right that's why i say it's a mix of hysteresis and homeostasis no but, but, but i mean regarding business travel in, in in particular which which may not be the best thing for us to dig into in great depth but i mean i think you're right that like if vcs get used to closing investment deals by a conference call, then they're gonna know like, yeah, I can close investment deals via a conference call, so we don't always need to wait in order to, for someone to meet face-to-face -face in order to do it, right? So that, I think that could be a genuine acceleration and efficiency improvement, because I mean, now, now you have VCs in Silicon Valley vying to close a deal with some hot startup in uh, you know, New York or Atlanta or somewhere, but they still wait to close until people can fly around and meet face to face, right? So if they get in their head that they don't need to do that, then you know the competition will happen in a bunch of video calls, and things will happen even even faster. So I think there, yeah, there there definitely will be cases like that. On the other hand, as someone who speaks at a bunch of events, I can see that the sort of connections you make at conferences and events isn't happening now. I mean, what? The kind of networking one can do now is great for those of us who are old and well networked and already know a lot of people. But in the current scheme of things, in this COVID period, there's no way for new people just entering an, an industry or an area of research to to build to build their social network. Like online online conferences really really don't cut it. Second Life doesn't doesn't cut it. So we're you know if if the COVID clears up significantly in the summer. There's a shitstorm of events that are postponed till September and, and October. So, I mean, one test will be, you know, how much of these events that were supposed to be in spring postponed till September and October, like how much are they flooded with people? And I, I think, I think assuming COVID clears up in the summer, they'll be astoundingly flood, flooded with, with people. I think that's a good distinction between conferences and just routine business travel, of which there's so goddamn much. I think so it, it won't be binary. But let's move on to the bigger questions. The point that, yeah, yeah. The point that you make, I think, is the, is the overriding one, is that unfortunately, in, without some interventions or revolt of the masses, uh, this is a step function event of the big getting bigger and the rich getting richer. You know, for instance, you know, my wife and I, uh, have talked about, oh, yeah, we should sign up for the Kroger, you know, order online, pick it up, uh, grocery thing. But we never did. And we continued to, you know, hit various small specialty stores, the local hippie co-op, etc. Well, guess what? In the uh, in the age of the plague, we uh, quickly mastered, uh, you know, all three of the major grocery chain order in advance and, you know, have it 
delivered into the back of your car services. And I can tell you, we're going to continue to use those things. And the percentage of our wallet share that goes to the hippie co-op and uh, to the little funky uh, small grocery store is going to go down. And we'll try to resist that because we're well, yeah, I mean, so here now I'm I'm in I'm on Vashon Island uh, near near Seattle right now, and. You know, an awful lot of live music clubs in Seattle where I know the musicians who play there, the proprietors, I mean, they're, they're, they're shutting down now because there's no gigs and no audiences. But most of these guys aren't going to start new live music clubs because it was pretty marginal in the first place, right? So you could see a whole new crop of little live music venues pop up, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of doubting it, actually. So that I think, yeah, that, yeah, there's a lot of things that were waiting to happen and kept back by inertia and they're given a, a, a nudge here. So no, that, no, there's, an mean, example. there's an example where things may reconfigure. I happen to know some people in the, uh, you know, kind of grassroots music business. And they've been telling me for years that the business has been moving from the clubs to what were, what were called home concerts, uh, where a musician and a homeowner who's a fan will get together and offer a, uh, concert charge 10 bucks or 20 bucks uh, and you know three quarters of it or 90% of it will go to the uh, musician and 10% will go to the homeowner to cover the cost of chips and water and uh, the musician will make a lot more money than they were making in the uh, clubs and the homeowner had this very cool experience of one of their favorite uh, niche musicians actually doing a concert in their home so maybe we'll see a reconfiguration more strongly to those home concerts. I mean, there's a lot of ways things could happen, and you know, you can play outdoors in a in a public park where the where where, where the where the climate is, is is warm. You can you can play in a, in a restaurant, right? But I, I guess the common trend will be the shift will be toward things that are lower costs to operate and involve less, uh, you know, working class human labor, and that that's going to be. I would say a common denominator among among these things, and then shifting to home concerts is sort of then again it's a shift toward the gig economy, right? Like the the guy whose house it is is temporarily play, playing the role that would be would be played by the by the club owner, but probably making less money than the than the club owner does. Right? On the so, other hand, has no cost, right? Has no variable cost. He has the house. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So it actually so may end up being more profitable, but it just it reconfigures how assets are used. Uh, and this, sh this shock will cause a lot of that. And, you know, I'm uh, suggesting to people who really want to think about the backside of the curve, which is coming very rapidly. I have to keep reminding people of that. Uh, this peak will be, you know, late April, May, June, maybe. Uh, and the backs managing the backside of the curve is going to be a much bigger and more important task for yeah. our society than trying to flatten the curve is. Because we're, you know, we're very much at I mean, the... Go ahead. So the case, the case of uh, music concerts is one where it may all be fine anyway. Like we've, we've already gotten rid of Tower Records and so on. You can distribute your music through the internet and you can play locally in, in somebody's backyard. Now, now the case of like uh, retail supply chains and of, uh, you know, retail being reduced to only like Walmart, on and, and Target or something. I mean, this this comes down to a corporate hegemony thing. Where then, if you're if you're selling a product, the '90s outlets want to sell. There's no way to get it to anyone, right? And so, I, I mean, I mean, in a lot of domains, 
you're seeing things narrow focus to just a few outlets. So it, it almost becomes like a variant of the, the dreaded old uh, communist system where you just have to buy everything online from, from the government's retail outlet or something. And these, of course, these big tech companies that are monopolizing things are large retailers. They are, in fact, closely tied with, with the government for better or worse, right? Like, I mean, Amazon and Microsoft putting huge new server farms, uh, right, right, and, and bodies of staff right next to the Pentagon. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're moving through the combination of uh, social factors like this COVID pandemic and then just economies of scale in technology. I mean, we're, we're moving toward an oligopoly that is uh, hard to break without busting out of the traditional ways of, of doing things, right? And that's uh, something that's been frustrating to me as someone who's been, you know, participating in the, the blockchain and crypto ecosystem through SingularityNet, which is the AI-based, uh, blockchain-based AI marketplace I, I've, I've been working on for the last couple of years. I mean, crypto and blockchain were sort of supposed to be forming alternatives to all these centralized hegemonic methods, right? Like when, when there was a global financial crisis, it's supposed to be Bitcoin that, that comes out as, as, as the new gold or the new global reserve currency or something. And then instead of Amazon, we're supposed to have some decentralized token-based system for you know, small sellers to sell things to customers with a, a smart decentralized reputation system. And then you know, as it is happening, when the world's in a situation where this sort of thing would really, really be useful, it's not ready for prime time, right? I mean, the US dollar is supreme again with a flight to quality, like, like always in a financial crunch. And, and, and then, uh, you know, decentralized marketplaces are very, either very specialized or just too crude to do anything. And if you ultimately, if you need to order a bunch of stuff, you gotta go to Amazon, right? So yeah, the question okay. is like by, by the next big, crisis, be it a pandemic or like a global rash of, of cyber attacks bringing down the power grid or whatever the, whatever the big next crisis is, and there probably will be one, right? Then, then will alternative mechanisms be there yet to even be part of the story? Because now in the current crisis, they're not really part of the story. Yep. Unfortunately, that is true. Uh, you know, again, you know, I've been working on this thing with some friends called Game B, which is a still fairly sketchy, uh, vague, I should say, uh, new social operating system operating with much more localism, much more ability to sever the networks without bad things happening, etc. But we're, you know, still years away from being ready to be an alternative social operating system. Though I am taking this as a wake-up call rather than saying we have, you know, 30 or 40 years to figure it out. Uh, I'm at least taking it as a personal mission to say, we got to figure this thing out before the next one. Because I think your, you know, your point is well taken. None of the alternatives. Yeah, so that's the question, right? How many, how many people will take this as a wake-up call in various ways? And that's uh, not entirely clear, right? I mean, like, you, you know, of course, what happened to Dostoevsky, the Russian writer. Like, he was put in front of the firing squad, gun is held to his head, then, you know, they fire and it, it turns out to be blanks. And after coming that close to death, you know, after that, he's like, wow, 
Every minute I breathe is, is, is amazing. Life, life is wonderful. I will cherish each moment. And that, that lasted like six months or something for him. Then you went back to grumbling about how annoying life is like always, right? So, I mean, that, that's the homeostasis, right? So the, the, the question is, how many people who are getting a wake-up call now will get a go-to-sleep call six months later when things seem to be back to normal? Because that's, I mean, that's what happens after every financial bubble and financial crash, right? After another six months or a year, people start thinking again that another crash can, can, can never happen again. Yeah. And Here, here's my view on this. I've been thinking about this hard, which is I do not believe this is the revolutionary time for the reasons you articulated that the infrastructure just isn't there yet. However, uh, a lot of people are being woken up. I'm talking to a bunch of them. And so I believe this epoch post the backside of the curve in the next six months that's a good time this is the time to build the cadre we may be able to build the cadre by a factor of 10 or 20 people who, uh, who whose ears have been opened by this big uh, basically uh, force applied to them they've been forced to think about life and death for the first time ever in their life for a lot of middle-class yeah. americans and so well, many, more, right. many yeah. more ears will be open so i personally and people i know are going to be putting forth a uh, a blitz to try to recruit, grow our cadre, which we might call our Game B space, 10,000 people. Let's see if we can grow it to a quarter million by the end of the year. Uh, and then from that basis, there'll be enough skill sets and there'll be enough leaders uh, that perhaps we can uh, build a faster route to spin up so that when the next crisis comes, and it is coming, whether it's uh, you know, yeah. cli climate related, a food pandemic. Which well, you, might, you might be right. I mean, I think people are have been woken up to some extent to the fact that things aren't quite as stable, predictable, and necessary as, as they had thought, right? Like to, to some of us, that's always been, been obvious that, that the status quo is kind of fragile and, and you could have a massive disruption at any time. But most people don't think that way. And their minds are blown that, oh, what the fuck, I can't go eat at, eat at a restaurant now. What the hell is, is going on? Like, airfare from Seattle to Boston is $10 each way. How can this be? So, so to people who really weren't thinking that things could be so radically disrupted, I mean, not, now they've got that in their head. And that, that, that does give an opening. And th this is part of our thinking with this uh, COVID-19 Decentralized AI Hackathon, the COVIDathon that we've organized with SingularityNet, together with that with Ocean Protocol and Decentralized AI Alliance, right? Like the the proximal goal, which is a real one, is like let's get hackers on AI and blockchain who are finding themselves perhaps with an unusual amount of free time now. You know, let's get them working, creating code that can be useful to help with the COVID nineteen situation. I mean, maybe some some code that, that uh, allows decentralized mechanisms to serve some useful functions now. On the other hand, you know, we're, we're also looking at this as an opportunity to aggregate together a whole bunch of, uh, of hackers with an enthusiasm that hasn't been there before for using AI to combat like global social issues, right? And so maybe in the optimal case, do something useful for COVID-19, and then we keep growing the group afterwards. And, and, and you have you know, a more integrated network of decentralized AI, AI hackers 
you know, building the infrastructure that will let us deal better with the next crisis when it comes. Because, yeah, of course the next crisis is going to come. Like, look at the whole world infrastructure. I mean, the, the major nations of, of, of the world are run, by, are run by what kinds of people, right? I mean, how, how stable is, 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 the, is the banking system? I mean, it's uh, every major system that, that regulates life on the planet has some extreme corruption or degeneration in it, right? And it's, uh, it's amazing that things even operate uh, as well as they do on an everyday basis. But they're certainly, they're certainly not robust enough to keep going to the technological singularity without a series of further crises, probably some much worse than the COVID-19 crisis. Exactly. I've been calling this the mini apocalypse, right? Uh, unlikely that the basic infrastructure goes down, electricity and water, things like that. Not, I would not make that next same guarantee about the next one. Uh, you have to go, and so do I. So let's spend the next five minutes on a little bit of a counter trend to what we've been talking about. Uh, one of my takeaways when I think about our Game B movement in particular is I'll, I'll confess, it has sort of a hippy-dippy flavor, decentralized building uh, proto-Bs that uh, communicate with each other through, uh, you know, uh, protocols that we all agree upon in advance, uh, an emergent justice system, etc. All sounds like a great way to live, but unfortunately doesn't necessarily sound like a great way to be able to respond in real time decisively against a crisis. Uh, so I think a challenge to all of us who are thinking about decentralized social operating systems we need, need now to use this event, and I would also postulate a uh, more severe version, uh, and essentially say that our decentralized social operating system needs to be able to have the near real-time command and control capabilities well, I, Jim, to deal with I think a strong that, system like this. I think the current U.S. response to COVID-19 illustrates very well the weakness of centralized control systems, right? Because, I mean, you, you have uh, a buffoon-in-chief in charge of the U.S. who is the centerpiece of the centralized control system. And because that one component is cognitively and emotionally faulty, I mean, then the response of the whole U.S. system was slower than it, it should have been. And China's response demonstrated the same thing, right? I mean, at the top, they had a system for suppressing freedom of press and freedom of information, and the top level of the centralized control system caused the initial response to be too slow, even though the response of China a little afterwards became, became highly efficient in, in, in many ways. So yeah, I think it's clear that a well-crafted decentralized response system can be much, much better than the centralized systems we have, we have now for the exact reason that the centralized system is is too too susceptible to failing due to weaknesses at the center, which is ex ex exact, exactly what we've we've seen. But you do, I mean, you need a effective, well-designed, decentralized system, not just well-designed but fully implemented and and tested. And and unfortunately, we don't have that yet. Not because it's not possible technologically or, or conceptually, just because insanely much more resources have gone into creating and maintaining the centralized systems because the resources are controlled by the people in power of the centralized system. Exactly. And how do we get the decentralized? I, I agree with you. Absolutely agree with you that the, this is a demonstration of the failure of game A and its over-reliance on a single faulty part. 
uh, and of course, it's not just in the U.S. Most of the West has also failed. Uh, you know, Italy and Spain, looks like England and France are also going to uh, suffer hard. Sweden's not doing well. So it's not just our own uh, faulty part. Sure. There's, uh, you know. You're right. You're right. I mean, uh, Trump is just an especially colorful example, but, but it's a, uh, it's a systemic phenomenon. It, yeah, and I do agree that it's, that uh, decentralized systems ought to do better, but we have to start thinking about them in terms of dealing with problems of this magnitude, not just in a hippy dippy way, how we live our life in a better way. And I think that's one of my big takeaways and one of my communications obligations going forward is to make sure that when we're thinking about these protocols. And I know you guys have been doing that with your singularity net, uh, you know, how do we deal with the biggest problems, you know, aliens invade the earth or, you know, a truly. No, I mean, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, you want to, we want to appear to all the reptile emotions. So we, we want to appeal to lust, but also to, to fear. Right. So, I mean, I, I think, and pe people sort of, uh, they, they, they need to understand all the dimensions of the situation in order to respond appropriately and understanding not only how wonderful an anarchist uh, utopia we can create with decentralized tools and, and methods, but also how scary the world can be if we don't have those decentralized methods to protect us from a bunch of shit. I mean, all, all, all these aspects are important to appealing to human motivational systems, right? Which is, which is, what, is what needs to be done if we're going to leverage human energy, because it's toward building an alternative to the centralized systems that control the world now. Because, you know, it's very possible to create decentralized networks that work much, much more efficiently than the centralized systems controlling the world now. But it is hard, right? I mean, it's not, it's, it's really even something as, as simple as, uh, you know, a decentralized, efficient payment system which the crypto world has been working on for a long time. I mean, it's, it's clear that's possible, but there's just a lot of algorithm and implementation work, work to, to be done there. And, and to make a whole decentralized operating system for the world, there's a whole lot of pieces like that that all have to, all have to work together. We absolutely have the technology and the brain power on the planet to do it, but we, people need to be energized and motivated in that in that direction so yeah if if this pandemic serves to wake up enough people with relevant skills and resources to the the need for building an alternative decentralized uh, infrastructure i mean then then the, the pandemic in hindsight will appear like an extremely positive thing for the evolution of humanity Let's end it right there. We both got to go. Thank you, Ben, for a very interesting perspective, as always. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the good questions. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the next time. Very good. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.